it's the fifth Sunday, and on fifth Sundays, we have the children during this service, we don't have Sunday school, and they get invited into here with families, because we, we value that, that families having whole worship experiences together, and had in the past done, like, invited the children to come up and have a little thing with whoever was speaking, and because of COVID, didn't want to do that, because we didn't want a bunch of, you know, kids like cramming all close together, and we're, we have a super spreader event here at 12 because of that, but we feel like it's a safe time to kind of re, to get going back on that, so if any children are here, elementary, I want to invite you to come up here, have a seat with me, um, and we're still, we're still good on the video, like you're not gonna, this doesn't cut my head off, right, I mean this doesn't just show a bald head to everybody online, I just want to make sure, if you're, so if you're small children, come on up, come up here, I've got something for you and something to do, so. I know that there are some of you here. Some sit over here. Let's get last last service. We had one here and about ten over there, and we got way out of balance. So spread out. Come on, guys. Good to see you. Is it kind of weird coming up here in front of all these people? I have to do this every week. Like, can you imagine how weird that is? Yeah. Good job. Okay. Scoot on in a little tighter. So I. Wow. Now we're kind of overbalanced over here. That's great. Do you guys have a good weekend so far? You guys going to the lake tomorrow or anything? Um, not going to a lake. We're going to the pool. To the pool? Yeah, yeah. someday. Yeah, someday. That's awesome. So, you guys going out of town? Staying around here? Yeah. Staying around here, it's kind of cold out. So, this morning we're going to talk about fruit. The Bible talks a lot about fruit. Check this, check this fruit out. And somebody in the first service, they thought this was fake, but I mean, you can see, is that fake right there? Look how nasty yeah. that grape yep. is. Isn't that horrible? Look how nasty that is. Yeah, because they said, that's like the same, some kid thought it was the size of a goose egg. He says, those are fake grapes, but that is a nasty grape right there. So we're going to set that over here. But the Bible does talk about fruit. Let me ask you guys a question. What is your favorite fruit? Favorite fruit? Apples, mostly, mostly apples. Cherries? I guess oranges. Oranges? Favorite fruit? You don't have one? You just like all fruit? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of our kids, one time we asked them, what's your favorite ice cream? And they said, just lots. <laughs> just lots. <laughs> Anybody else? What's your favorite fruit? Uh, strawberries. Strawberries. So nobody's like big on bananas. Our granddaughter, she can eat like two bananas in a day. It's crazy. Oh, you like bananas? Okay. So let me ask you a question, one more question. Not just your favorite fruit, but if a tree that is a fruit tree, if it never bears fruit, do you think that's a healthy tree or do you think that's an unhealthy tree if it doesn't ever bear fruit? Huh? Yeah, it's probably unhealthy, right? And if a fruit tree makes a lot of fruit, do you think that's healthy or unhealthy? Yeah, probably healthy. Okay, good job, guys. So... Right, if it's not, it has to be healthy to grow anything. Probably fertilizer and all that stuff, right? Okay. Do you know the Bible talks about us having fruit like we're a fruit tree? But I don't think it really literally means like I should grow an orange or whatever these are called. I should grow one of these on my head, right, or on my cheek. Do you think it means that? No, probably not. Huh? They're called what? Oh, Mandarin, okay. So when the Bible talks about fruit, it talks about a fruit that's actually inside of us, and it says that what God wants to see in us is the fruit of, like, love, 
the fruit of joy, the fruit of kindness, the fruit of patience. So we're actually going to kind of talk about some of that today. So like the fruit of the spirit, you nailed it. You should be up here preaching this morning. <laughs> so, okay, that's all. Just wanted to talk about fruit a little bit with you guys. Now, we, if you don't have it, if your parents didn't get it, we have like a little bag in the back that has some fruit stuff on it. And I got you guys fruit snacks. I went yesterday to Walmart. So grab one of those with you on your way down. If you've got like an older brother or sister who's sitting there who didn't come up here, grab them one. So you guys can grab a fruit snack, take it with you, okay? Thanks for coming up. Good job. Grab a fruit snack. You're welcome. I hope I got the right kind. I think I prefer the bluer bag, actually, personally, but. All right, did everybody get one? Did you get one for your brother or sister that was out back there? Oh, I think we have a sister. Zeke, come here, man. Yes, Ryan, come on up. Zeke, come here, dude. This is for your sister. Good catch. All right. So we are going to be talking about fruit. We're going to be in, um, in Mark's gospel. We're actually going to go backwards, and there's a reason that we're going to go backwards. Um, because I had determined a while back that I wanted to... There's just a lot of tough texts in the gospels, right? Things Jesus says or does. And we've, really, we've been trying to not avoid those things because I think understanding them, there's always very profound spiritual truth. And had decided that I would take a Sunday where I might hit a few of those. So we had asked a few weeks back for people's big questions. And there were two that were obviously the top two that I want to, uh, to talk about. By the way, next week, we're going to be talking about suffering. That's a topic that's extremely important. I think a lot of us have questions. We're going to be back in the Gospel of John. And there's some things from chapter 11, really important things we learn about suffering and how the Bible views it. Um, the first text that I got asked about, this was the number two was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three of those Gospels, there's a point where Jesus said to his followers, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And a lot of people are like, I mean, his, we're still waiting for his kingdom to come, and how, what's he meaning that some of them, are gonna, or they won't taste death? And this one sparked a lot of confusion. Even in both of my triads, this thing got, um, got asked. I just wanted to show you that in those three Gospels, because we've talked about when you have, anytime I have questions, one of the most important things is for me to ask the context, the context question, like what's the context? And if you'll read before and after, a lot of times that can help answer the question. And in all three Gospels, right after Jesus says that is the story of the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John go up and they see him like take on his full glory. And so that gives you a little bit of hint. Maybe the thing he was talking about wasn't his coming and the second coming, but he was talking about his transfiguration. And actually, so that, that those go together. And then later this year, when we get in the book of 2 Peter, you're going to find out that actually is what Jesus was talking about. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, Peter, we will read, writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from, come, came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter interprets what Jesus has said then. He's tying it actually to the transfiguration. So that's a, that one I just kind of wanted to hit quickly. Um, the next text is actually 
a really, really tough one, and, but it has a really important life lesson for us. So I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 11 with me. Turn to Mark chapter 11, and if you wouldn't mind, I want to stand, and I'm going to read our text. So it's Mark chapter 11, reading out NIV, but I invite you to stand. Open your Bible, because we're going to come back a couple times and refer to a few verses in this. If you've got your Bible on your phone, that's okay. But I want you to open to Mark chapter 11. And this is not going to be on the screen, but here is the story. I'm actually going to start in verse 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples, they heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And this is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. All right, so we have this, this story of uh, frequently called the cursing of the fig tree. Interesting story because, number one, it's the only miracle Jesus ever did that was destructive instead of constructive. The only one he ever did that way. And a lot of people consider it one of the most difficult stories in, the, in all the Gospels. Um, it was the story that I was asked the most to speak about um, when we asked for that. Um, it's caused a lot of consternation. It seems totally inconsistent with Jesus. Jesus who heals people, who brings life, who cares for the poor, who accepts children, who, who loves outcasts and widows and, I mean, all these things the marginalized, this seems so opposite of everything we know about him, doesn't it? When you read it, it kind of like, like, what is going on there? Um, if you read people's opinions of this, you hear words like, he is so arbitrary, what he does is meaningless, it's shocking. People have said Jesus is being petty, vindictive, that he's being irrational. Um, just last night, I was talking to my family about it, and they said, yeah, maybe he was hangry, I don't know. Maybe Jesus was hangry when this happened. I kind of thought that was a cool way to put it. William Barclay, a pretty good commentator, doesn't like this story. Here's what he said. There can be no doubt that this, without exception, is the most difficult story in the gospel narrative. To be frank, the whole incident does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems a certain petulance to it. He simply uses his power to blast a tree, which has disappointed him when he was hungry. It was both unreasonable and it was unjust. Another person writing about this said, the fig tree incident looks peculiar. Peculiar. It wasn't yet time for figs. Surely Jesus was being petty and petulant. There's that word again. Cursing the fig tree for doing what fig trees always do, putting out leaves in the spring but not yet bearing the fruit. Bertrand Russell, the most famous atheist of last century, um, wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian, and this story is included in that book as one of the reasons why he's not a Christian. I mean, think about it. Jesus is looking for figs at a time when figs are out of season, 
and then he doesn't find him, and he gets mad, and he blasts an innocent tree and destroys it for not having the thing that it can't even have, right? It's just like, Jesus, like, what's going on here? And what I want to tell you what's going on here is something I think we've all experienced. I think we've all had the experience of you saw something from a distance or you bought a product online or off TV or whatever. Uh, I don't buy many products off TV. But when you get it, it doesn't deliver what was promised. It's not what it really appeared. Have you ever had that experience with anything where something you thought was one thing and you got it, it wasn't? Several years ago, I wanted to buy... Um, an iPod Nano, they were expensive at that time, like $300, but I didn't want a new one, I wanted a broken one, because there was a concept I wanted to illustrate that I talked with students a lot, and it would be helpful for me to have it, because I use that concept with individuals, I spoke about that a lot. So I wanted to buy a broken one. So I got on eBay, and I found a, I found a whole lot of them, and I picked uh, the cheapest one, it was like 15 or $20 for a broken iPad Nano that didn't work. And it came, and as soon as I opened the box and looked at it, I knew this was not the real deal. It, instead of being all metal like Steve Jobs had them made, it's got cheap plastic. You can probably hear how cheap the plastic is. The flywheel thing on here, whatever that wheel is, it's, it's, it just doesn't work. The, the metal on the back is cheap, and it doesn't even have the Apple logo. And I knew that I had been, like I'd been sold down the river. That a guy, and it didn't even match the photo of what I had bought. And it took me like a month of interacting with that guy to get my money back because what I saw and what appeared to be one thing when I got it was a totally different thing. We've all had that experience, right? So we're going to see that that's really what this story is about. It's about things, especially people, who appear to be one thing on the outside, but the reality that's going on inwardly is not what, what God expects. So that's where we're going with this. So, you know, you know when you read this stuff, there's got to be more that meets the eye. And there is it with this story. So I want to remind you, we read the Bible with first century eyes, but we ask 21st century questions. So I want to take a minute and look at this, understanding the culture, and then we're going to come out and ask the question, what's Jesus, what would he, how's he, what's he saying to us? And so I think the first thing we need to do is we need to talk about fig trees. I've never seen a fig tree, and I'm not well acquainted with them, but if you're in Israel, they are everywhere. It's really common. They grow to be about 20 feet tall. They're huge. I mean, they're really big trees. And they're really unique among fruit trees in that they bear two crops every year. Fruit tree, fig trees bear true, two, not true, two crops. The first main crop goes, grows like mid-August to mid-October. That is the main crop. That's the fig that we know. Um, in Hebrew, they call it Tanah. That's the name of this, of what they call a fig. That is where we get the famous Fig Newtons. Uh, I hear a Fig Newtons, a love it, hate it food. I love Fig Newtons. I don't know any hater, any Fig Newton haters here. I saw a few lovers, okay. Uh, I'm a Fig Newton lover. Um, I will do want to, speaking of Fig Newtons, I want to give you a little bit of parenting advice I learned. So those of you who have young toddlers, um, I want to tell you, don't ever give Fig Newtons to toddlers in the backseat of a car, unsupervised on a long vacation trip, on a long drive. Um, that squeal that you will hear coming from back there is a squeal of joy and delight that when you stop and see what they've done with those Fig Newtons in their hands and on their face and on the upholstery, it's, it's not a good thing. So just... Uh, just a little piece of advice. One other thing about uh, figs, when I think about figs, sorry, my brain goes in weird places. How, you guys ever seen Brian Regan? He's a really, he's a good comic. Uh, he talks about Fig Newtons, and he pointed out, do you know how many, if you buy Fig Newtons, do you know what the serving size is? How many you're supposed to eat after supper if you eat them? Who knows the serving size of Fig Newtons? It's only two. And he's like, are you kidding me? Only two Fig Newtons? He says, when I eat Fig Newtons, I eat them by the sleeve. 
like the serving size should be the sleeve. So this, this thing that grows in like autumn, to, I mean, in, um, is it not autumn, what's the month? August to October is the normal fig tree. But they grow a second crop. After the fig trees are done, a little bud will appear. There's the little kid thing. A little bud will appear. And that bud is the second crop. And this is something that's called something totally different. It will grow um, what in the Old Testament is called an early fig, but it's something totally different. In Hebrew, they call it a pagim. It's kind of a little bit like a nut, I've heard, is what it's like. Um, those grow in March and April. The, the word we would use in English, if people grow figs, like in California, they call it a breba. That's the name of that. It is not a fig. It's something that's totally different. Um, and these things appear first. The first, these little brebas will appear, and then the leaves appear soon after. And so by the time you get to April, you will have a fig tree with these little nutty things, these brebas on them, with lots of leaves that have appeared. And so when Jesus is coming to deal with this tree, um, it's the time of Passover, and what he's looking for is actually a breba. He's not looking for a fig. And we're going to see in a minute that really gets significant. Um, but one thing I need to tell you about these brebas, you know, people eat them. I hear they're edible, but they're not that great. I um, was just talking to somebody from Lebanon, and they don't really remember those, and I think it's because modern people don't do much with those kinds of things. But if these brebas will not grow in the spring, then figs will not grow in the fall when it comes time. If there are no brebas, there are going to be no figs. So a tree that has none of these is a tree that's essentially worthless and useless. And so this tree in this story, it's all leafed out, and from a distance to any Jew, if you see a fig tree full of leaves, you know the brebas have already appeared on it, so these pagims that Hebrews would call them. So Jesus goes up to get some of those to eat, and he's immediately disappointed because what he sees from a distance on the outside when he gets close, it's not giving the reality of the thing that it should be doing, which is bearing fruit. It's all leaves and no fruit. One commentator wrote, it's all expectation, it's no satisfaction. So this tree, it's totally useless. So when you see this story, this is part of what's going on. And now I want to go back to the text. I'm actually going to show this to you because I think this is really, um, really helpful. Because when we look at, um, yeah, that's what those brebas look like if there's a few more. When we get to this text, it says in verse 3, seeing the, in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Now tell me, when you read that word fruit, this was me probably before a month ago, if you read that word fruit, what was in your mind that he was expecting to find? What? Figs. You thought he was going looking for figs, but he wasn't going looking for figs, right? He was going looking for, for breba is the word of them. Um, and he found nothing but leaves. I want to show you something really interesting. The Greek word for a fig tree, you can see it's suke. And the Greek word for a fig is sukon. You see it at the end of verse 13. You, um, you see it also down in chapter verses 20 and 21. That's the word for a fig. But in verse 13, there's something really significant in the Greek that I didn't know till a few weeks ago where it says, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any. It isn't the word fruit. In fact, the word fruit appears um, down in verse 14. Karpos is the Greek word for fruit. It doesn't say fruit. What it says in Greek is he went out to see if it had anything. That's literally what it says, if it had anything. Um, so when he was going to it again, that, that even would have been helpful to me if, if the NIV had said anything instead of fruit because the word fruit confused me. Let me show you the Berean literal Bible. 
Um, I think the way they translate it is much helpful. Verse 13, having seen a fig tree from afar, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he will find anything on it. That's pretty helpful for me. And having come to it, he found nothing except leaves. And I even like the way this translation does that, for it was not the season of figs. Because that's the other thing that always confused me. It's like, Jesus went up to find figs, there's no figs, he killed it, even though it wasn't fig season. And I like the way they've, they've kind of, the way they put it at the end of this sentence and with the semicolon, because let me tell you what's going on. Matthew, in his account of this incident, doesn't say in his account anything about this is the season of figs. This is not the season of figs. He doesn't say that. And there's a reason. Matthew, if you remember, wrote his gospel to Jewish people. They had fig trees all over. They knew fig trees like the back of their hand. Uh, and also, any Jew reading his gospel in Matthew, they know that when they come to this story, they've already been told that it's the time of Passover. And so a Jewish person, when he reads this story, he knows it's April, and he knows that what Jesus is looking for is a breba. He's not looking for a fig. Mark wrote his gospel probably in Rome, and he wrote it to a Gentile audience. Romans were the kind of people he was trying to convince that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Mark adds this sentence. So he says he's going to a fig tree, and people in the whole Mediterranean, there are fig trees all over. They knew fig trees. They knew the two kinds of the fruit that it would produce. He said he went, he saw a fig tree, and he didn't find anything on it. That's kind of a clue to if you're a Roman, you're reading this. And having come to it, he found nothing except leaves. And then he adds this. For Mark adds it. It's not the season of figs. Because a Roman reading Mark doesn't understand. He, he has no concept of Passover. And so if you're a Roman reading Mark, you don't know the time frame of what you're dealing with. But when Mark says, by the way, when this happens, it's not the season of figs, automatically a Roman reader is like, oh, these are the brebas that are occurring in early April. So we're talking about springtime. This event happens in spring. So you see how Mark adds this editorial comment for his Roman readers who had no sense of what time frame he was dealing with. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps. It helped me a lot. But I want to show you something even more important that I think um, that even is helpful with me understanding this, and it's this, that this story is an example of a prophetic symbolic action, a prophetic symbolic action. This was common in the Old Testament prophets where they would come with the word of judgment and accompanying this word, they would do some kind of action that would illustrate the thing that they were saying. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, there's a prophet named Ahijah, and Ahijah comes up to Solomon's son, Jeroboam who's going to inherit the kingdom from Jeroboam. And he's going to tell him that in judgment, God is breaking the kingdom apart, and Solomon's descendants are only getting a part of it. So he comes up to Jeroboam. He takes off his cloak, says he rips it into 12 pieces. He hands 10 to him, and he says, God is taking your father's kingdom, tearing it apart. You're only going to inherit 10 of them. And so by this action, he is showing the thing that he's trying to communicate. And that that's really what Jesus is doing. It's a, we could say it's a prophetic object lesson. Um, and to me, that really helps make sense of what's going on. And I want to tell you, his use of a fig tree in all this, to me, is so significant. Um, because fig trees were actually one of the national symbols of Israel. The two national symbols of Israel in that day were grapevines and fig trees. I mean, just like we have a national symbol, right? We've got... One is Uncle Sam. If you see an Uncle Sam, without any words, you know what that country that represents, right? I think even more importantly than us, if I were to ask you, what's our national symbol? What animal is the symbol of America? You would say what? 
the bald eagle, right? So the fig tree is the equivalent of the bald eagle. It represents Israel and all of Israel. Um, that's what it means to Jewish people. And in the Old Testament, God is continually calling Israel to bear fruit. And the fig tree was, and the grapevine were both illustrations of their fruitfulness or their non-fruitfulness. And any time they were not bearing fruit because of their continual rebellion, when God came in judgment on Israel, frequently the first sign of his judgment is, is the grapevines and the fig trees would all die out or they would be destroyed by an invasion of an enemy army. So the fig trees dying was always a symbol of judgment to them. In Hosea 2.12, God says this, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were hers from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. So I think all that understanding, we can't, we, that is so significant understanding how they thought of fig trees and how symbolic that was. And so that tree that Jesus encountered that day, when he encounters this tree that looks great from a distance, but when he gets up close, it's missing the thing that it should have. Okay? That is symbolic of the nation of Israel as he found it, not just in his day, but as he found it coming into Jerusalem, where it's that final week and he's coming as the king. And just as that nation of a whole had shown this outward appearance of spiritual life in so many ways, that as he got into it and saw it up close, it was missing the very thing that it needed. It was fruitless. It was not, provide, it was not doing the things that it advertised. And I mean, think about it. The temple, he's coming to the temple. It says he was there the day before. He was looking around at everything. The temple had this outward appearance of greatness. In fact, in Mark 13, his disciples say to him, they go, look at this. Look how magnificent this building is. And I'm going to come back in a minute to what Jesus, how he responded to that. But outwardly, that thing looks so great. A lot of religious activity happening in the temple. But we see in the middle of this story that he says what was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations had become a den of robbers, right? What it looked like on the outside, but what it was in reality were two different things. How about the religious leaders of his day? They wore special clothes. Everybody knew who they were. They did their big prayers in public. They wore the Torah on their foreheads with the, the phylacteries. They wore them wrapped around. I mean, they had so much outward show of the appearance of religion. But in Matthew 23, 27, he said of them that they were whitewashed tombs. They looked beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of dead bodies. Pretty strong, right? Pretty strong statement. Inward reality didn't match outward appearance, just like the temple. Inward reality didn't match outward appearance. How about the Jewish people as a whole? They were known for very strong religious belief. They were known in the whole Roman world for their strong religious belief. They were known for their very strict adherence to religious law. They were a very religious-looking people. But in Matthew 15, here's Jesus' assessment of the people, the majority of them. In verses 8 and 9, he said, These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. That the nation of Israel was a lot of talk, but not a lot of walk. That's what he found with them. That again, the inward reality didn't match the outward appearance of those people. And so he arrives at Jerusalem, and I'm telling you, when he arrives in Jerusalem at Passover, comes to the temple, there was a lot of religious activity going on there. There was a lot of hustle and bustle, right? The show of religiosity was huge, but there was no genuine evidence of fruit of the Spirit, kind of the fruit of God that comes from an intimate relationship, the things that came out from them inwardly that he was looking for as their God and as their king. None of that was there. Looked great on the outside, but the internal was horrible. 
he found that they were just like, this nation was just like this tree. And because of their heart condition, they wouldn't even come to him. Just before he entered Jerusalem, Luke 13 says that he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those those who sent, sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children? Remember this word gather. It's really significant. This is him coming to Jerusalem. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Your house is going to be left desolate. So he's like, I'm coming to you as the Lord. I'm coming to you as the Messiah. I'm coming to you as king. You've got all this religious show on the outside, but you won't come to me. So this fig tree symbolized Israel. It symbolized where they were really internally, and it symbolized also the, jump, the coming judgment that God was going to put on the temple, on Jerusalem, and on all of Israel. Just a day or two after this story, Jesus says this to the Jewish people in the temple, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it's going to be given to a people who will produce its fruit. You're fruitless, and I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to give it to people who will produce its fruit. And how severe is the judgment? So he's illustrating judgment coming on Israel, right, with that tree. It's this, it's this prophetic, symbolic action. And how severe is it going to be? I mean, look at verse 20. In verse 20, when they come out the next morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree, and it was withered from the what? What's it say? Withered from the roots. It was dead as dead, right? Total destruction. And that's what's coming on Israel. That's what he is showing to them is coming on Israel. That's why when they said in Mark 2, 13, 1, they said, hey, do you see all these wonderful buildings and how magnificent? He says right after that, I want you to know that not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And it happened in AD 70 when Rome sent Titus the general to finally get rid of these rebellious people. And they came in, they, they destroyed Jerusalem, they flattened the city, they tore down the temple, not a single stone was standing. They killed, they estimate, a third of the population of that country. A third were sold as slaves within the country, and a third were shipped off to other places just to scatter them and to kill them as a people, right? Huge judgment, it came upon Israel. Just as God, as Jesus had predicted, and just as he was kind of showing with this this symbolic action that he's doing. You know, their whole history was preparing for Messiah, and he comes, and they can't even accept or see that he's the one, that their fruit, them as a fruit tree has failed just as all through their history they failed. They have failed again. So as all this is happening, with, I want you to think, so his followers, they're seeing the fruit tree thing. They're seeing what he, what's going on with the temple. They're hearing the things that he's saying. They're hearing the things he's saying about judgment coming. That I think there should have been a few Old Testament prophet, prophecies that should have come to their mind. Some prophetic utterances about when Messiah came. I want to show you three of them. They should have remembered Jeremiah 8.13, which says this. When I would gather them, remember that word, gather? Jesus says, I came to gather you. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and what I gave them has passed away from them. They should have drawn into memory with this fig tree incident and all that's going on, the things Jesus is saying. They should have remembered Micah 7, 1, where this is God speaking. What misery is mine. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, and there's no cluster of grapes to eat. And none of the early grapes, that's the Breba, 
That's the bray, but none of the early grapes that I crave. So God's like, I'm coming to my vineyard, and I'm coming to my fig trees, and I'm wanting fruit, and what misery I find because those brabas that I'm looking for, they're not there. And then in um, Hosea chapter 9, verses 16 to 17, this is what Hosea writes about Israel. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered, right? We've seen that word because this tree got withered. They yield no fruit. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. This is a prophetic declaration that God is going to disperse them in judgment because when he comes to them looking for that brave fruit, they don't have it. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to gather his people to himself, and they're bearing no fruit. So to me, this story is a clarion call against empty, fruitless religion. That's what this is about. This story is about empty, fruitless religion. And in a minute, I want to apply it. Before I do, I just want to add something. Um, All this semester, this year, um, as we've been going through the New Testament, I've been asking the question, does Jesus ever ask of us anything that he's not willing to do himself? When he asks us to deny ourselves or to take up our cross, is he willing to take up his cross for us? Right? He does. When he, when he asks to give, be willing to give up everything to follow him, does he, did he not give up everything to win us back to himself? That everything he does, he, he never asks or does anything that he's not willing to take on himself. I was thinking about this tree this week. What about this tree? Does he do anything to this tree that he is not willing to take upon himself? In verse 21, Peter's estimation of what happened to the tree is he said it was cursed. And that's a really significant word. You know, when you interpret the Bible, a principle I've tried to share with you is when you see significant words, go back to the very beginning of the occurrence of that word in the Bible because many times there's a thread or a theme of it that goes through. Where do you first see the word cursed in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. When because of the sin of the man and woman, their rejection of relationship with God, curse comes upon all of creation. That's the first time you see this. So here this tree becomes cursed. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a what? He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Some English translations say anybody hung on a tree. So Jesus, if it is a curse that he puts on this tree, is he doing something to this tree that he's not willing to take upon himself in spades? Because just a few days later, he will take the full wrath of God upon himself. He will take the curse of all of creation upon himself, and he will carry my curse and everybody's curse on the cross, and he'll take that curse and he'll defeat it there so that I can have a relationship with him and he can save me from it. He is, there is nothing he does to this tree that he is not willing to do to himself. Um, I just love that part of this story. And then one day, this Jesus who took that curse and defeated sin, death, and Satan on the cross, he will return again. There will be a new creation. And Revelation 21 talks about that new creation. That's a place where... God's dwelling with us, we're his people, there will be no more tears, no more death, no crying, no pain, because the old's passed away, everything's made new, and Revelation 22, 3 says this really profound thing, no longer will there be any curse. Because Jesus took the curse, there will no longer be any curse. Is he not beautiful? Okay, application. Because we read with first century eyes, but we ask 21st century questions. So the question is, what do I take from this for me, for 12th, for my own life? 
What's it have to say for us? And I'm going to skip a couple things, and I'm going to get there. I'm going to go back. That thing is a little bit slow. There it is. This is, to me, the application as I thought about this. This story of the fig tree is an object lesson on the connection of faith and fruitfulness, that the two go together. Faith and fruitfulness go together. God expects his people to be a people that bear spiritual fruit. And if I were to define it, because I was asking that question, the New Testament identifies four things as fruit, markers of fruitfulness in our lives, four things. It is having the inner character of Jesus, it is righteous living, it's praising God, and it's reproducing ourselves by reaching the lost. In Galatians 5, the, the passage we know, the passage the kids mention, they mention it in first service, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's part of the fruit that Jesus desires from us. Philippians 1, 9 to 11, Paul writes, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be filled with the, filled with the what? Fruit, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Hebrews 13, 15, the author writes, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, which he calls the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So when I'm praising God, which we were doing earlier, that is part of our fruit. And then in Romans 1, Paul talks about our fruit being reaching the lost. In verse 13 of chapter 1, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit. I want to see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles in other cities. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. And then in verse 15, he says, So I am eager to come to you in Rome too to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of the good news, this good news about Christ. It is the power of God to work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Gentile. So this story, it's all of this fig tree, it's all about this connection of faith, faith and fruitfulness and that God expects from his people spiritual fruit. That's his expectation. And it's all through the Bible. When he creates humans in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, his first command of them is be fruitful and multiply. He repeats that to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He repeats it to Noah. He repeats it to the people of Israel. All through the Old Testament, he talks about this picture that they should be producing spiritual fruit and that he's a person who comes and looking for fruit and judges fruit. We get to John, the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus' predecessor, and the core of, part of the core of his message was Matthew 3.8 where he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So John is calling for the production of fruit. And Jesus called his disciples to fruitfulness a lot of places. Um, the parable of the sower, the famous parable where he talks about the four kinds of soils. Here's how he ends that in Mark 4.20. The seed that fell on the good ground refers to someone who hears the word and they accept it. This is the one who produces, in the NIV it says a crop, but in the group, in the Greek, it's karpos, it's fruit. They produce fruit, yielding a hundred, some sixty, or some thirty times what is sown. But that good seed bears fruit. And in John 15... One of my favorite chapters, he says that his desire of his followers is that we bear fruit, in verse 5, much fruit, 
in verse 8, he says, it's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. And by bearing fruit, it shows you to be my disciple. And in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So God is seeking from me, from you, from all of us, from his people. He is longing for fruitfulness. He wants us to have the inner character of Jesus, to exhibit outwardly the righteousness of Jesus. He wants us to be praising God, and he wants us to be reproducing ourselves by reaching lost people. And so my question is, for myself and for you, is how are you doing on those things? Because to me, that's what this story is about. How are we as a body, how are we doing on those things? How are you doing personally on those things? Would you agree it is not... It is easy to get caught up in a lot of religious activity, a lot of hustle and bustle, that it's possible to have a church building with a lot going on, that on the outside maybe looks like there's a lot going on, right? But if God were to come and inspect it internally for fruitfulness to see if it's the real thing, the thing that he really wants, would you not, would you not agree that that can happen in our own lives, I hope I'm clear on what I'm asking, that I can get so busy doing the work of the Lord that I'm not walking with the Lord, and therefore I'm not bearing the fruit of the Lord, and the thing he most wants from me is not the working for him, but it's the fruit, it's the relationship and the fruit, the fruit will lead to the other one, but is it not easy to get all caught up in religious activity and we are missing the point, and we're not delivering the thing that he's looking for, and so we become like this, this iPod Nano, Looks good from a distance on the outside, but up close, it's not. Let me end with the key to the fruitful life, because I've been thinking about that. Two scripture I want to share. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Doesn't just spend 10 minutes in a day, but meditates, thinks about it through the day, through the week. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whether they do, whatever they do prospers. And then back to John 15, 4 to 5. Jesus said, abide in me as I must abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. So if, you, if you're like, there's a lot of religious activity in my life, but I think I'm missing out on the fruit, the internal, which is what he wants. Here's my challenge. I mean, I think that's what we're doing this year by going through the New Testament and by encouraging each other that, that we're spending some time every day in the Word of God and we're in groups to be accountable and to apply it and to ask what's God speaking to me and how am I applying that to my life, that what we're doing, this is the kind of activity that brings fruitfulness. So I just want to say good job for those of you that are doing this, who are being on it, that you're being faithful. We're ha almost halfway through the year. I really want to challenge you, keep, keep being in the Word. But don't just read the Word. Here's my challenge, because fruitfulness is what he wants. Here's my challenge. Delight in it. Again, if you've kind of lost the delight, then get back in it tomorrow and say, Lord Jesus, today, I want to find one thing in here of how beautiful you are. I want to delight in you. I want to gaze on your beauty. I want to be drawn to you, and I want to become like you. So open it anew and just say, I want to delight in it. And then don't just read it and you set it aside, but think about it, meditate on it. 
and then abide with him. Again, we're not just reading the word to be in the word. It's not just another religious checkbox. It's I am trying to encounter him. It's abiding in him. So I am opening this. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, I want to meet you in this today. I don't just want to read words and set this aside as a religious activity. I want to meet you. Because if I meet you and I'm seeing you in this and I'm delighting in you, that's the thing that's going to generate the fruitfulness that you want. Does that make sense? So to me, that's what this story is about, is being in the word, delighting in it, thinking about it, walking with him through it so that his fruitfulness can come out of it. Because that's what he desires from all of us, right? So would you stand with me? Lord, as we stand here today, I mean, it is so easy. Here we are. We're a church, 12th Avenue. And you know, I mean, we read about the churches in Revelation like Laodicea who they thought they were rich and they were wealthy and they were clothed. And you said of them, you are naked and you're poor. Um, it is so easy to be about doing things. And there's nothing wrong, Lord, with that. But it's so easy to be so busy for you that we lose the connection with you. And when we lose the connection with you, then your fruit will not grow from the inside out. And so, Lord, thank you for this story, for its call and reminder to me that the thing you most want is me and my relationship with you and, and your word dwelling in me and I'm delighting in it. And so I just pray that you would make us a people who do that, who center our lives on your word and who are being transformed to be like Jesus from the inside out so that when you look at us, you see us as being a fruitful tree and not something with a lot of leaf, but none of the fruit that you're looking for. So just help us to be that kind of people. That is my heart's desire for my own life and for this body. So Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 12th, this week, I send you, go be in the word, spend time in the word, delight in it, meditate on it, and above all else, 12th, you're sent to be fruitful this week. So go bear fruit. You're sent.